0: Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is the second installment of our noble experiment, a second weekly shorter dig analyzing the past week's news. It's what some might call a diglet.
1: Because I said everything. I hit him with neo-Nazi. I hit him with everything. I, I got the white supremacists, the neo-Nazi. I got them all in there. Let's see So yeah, KKK, we have KKK.
0: My guest today is Alex Perrine, politics editor at Splinter. We're going to discuss his recent piece there, entitled, Charlottesville was a preview of the future of the Republican Party, along with other things about the Republican Party and its leader, Donald Trump. Before we get started, I want to thank the dozens of people who signed up to support us on Patreon.com after last week's show, Doing this second weekly episode costs time and money, and we can really only afford to keep it up if you, our loyal listeners, contribute. So please, if you haven't already, go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com, and make a contribution. A dollar a month is great, five dollars is even better, and we will mail you book swag if you throw down ten dollars or more. Again, this second weekly episode isn't a for-sure permanent thing yet, so if you like it and want us to keep it going, please hit pause for a moment and go to patreon.com to support the show. Our estimate is that less than 3% of our roughly 15,000 weekly listeners are currently donating. We are really grateful for all the support that we have received, but we do think we can do a little bit better. Okay. Here's the show. Alex Breen, welcome to The Dig.
1: Hey, thank you for having me.
0: So on Wednesday night, Trump went to his happy place, Phoenix, Arizona, (laughs) um, and was met with large protests. He suggested he would pardon anti-immigrant Sheriff Joe Arpaio celebrated confederate statues as our heritage defended his response to charlottesville called out antifa by name threatened to shut down the government if congress doesn't fund his border wall and took shots at senators mccain and flake what was he up to if you can go so far to ascribe agency intentional kind of thinking planning to, to him
1: well um as you described it, it's his happy place the um the 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 tell with him is that everything always goes back to the 2016 election and whether that's giving out copies of his electoral map victory to people or, <laughs> uh, but it was just it was he was just um, you know trying to go home again to when he was happy, which is when uh, he just kept defying all the experts and and winning in 2016 and and uh, I mean just speaking before an arena full of his supporters. Um, and, uh, just going completely off script is, is like when he is at his happiest and when, you know, that's when he forgets about, uh, how much he actually hates everything about the job of being president.
0: So it's not part of any, um, grand strategy looking ahead to 2018 or 2020. He does it for the feels.
1: I, I hesitate to ascribe strategy to him. I mean, he's, he's canny, but he's not really strategic, um, So I I think that uh, he thinks and he probably has people around him who tell him uh, that the way to get his, you know, uh, numbers back up is to go back out on the trail and meet the voters. Um, So he might, you know, I I, trying to launch his reelection campaign a few months into less than a year into his presidency um, might be what he thinks is is strategically a good move. But uh, if anything, he's his his minders uh even if they claim that they're horrified at what he might say um they're probably just happy to have him out um out of you know out of the house basically <laughs> like they are like he'll blow off some steam and he'll be in a better mood uh if he just goes out and and goes through one of his rallies again uh and then he'll be a happier person and we can we can manage him a little bit more easily
0: So it's like the President Trump version of an infant's nap time.
1: Yeah, it it totally is. Yeah, And that's exactly my 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 baby was uh, just refusing to eat his cereal and was shouting at the cat. uh, And I knew it was time for him to just lay down for a little bit. And that's what uh, President Trump had to do uh, yesterday.
0: So he defended his response to Charlottesville uh, last night, um, which he failed to mention included uh, blaming both sides um, and talked about how he went out of his way to announce the KKK and white supremacists and the media didn't give him any credit. And it was really Trump doing the Trump thing. And this is just, you know, not so long after he gave this sober, scripted, uh, you know, America needs to come together to fight this war in Afghanistan speech. What do you make of what has become this very typical dynamic of, of Trump- um, letting trump do his thing and then seemingly under heavy heavy pressure from advisor giving these scripted quote-unquote you know presidential speeches and then back
1: again the you you, again and it goes back to the the campaign but you could see um he because of his very very uh simplistic sense of like dominance politics to to use a popular buzz phrase. Um, He sort of grasps that uh, he looks weak. If he gives in to any pressure to do anything that uh, he is sort of on the record saying he doesn't want to do. And so over and over again, it's like the, the, the David Duke uh, endorsement that he refused to renounce and then was pressured into doing it like he every time he's pressured into doing something like that um he comes back harder immediately afterwards because he resents the fact that someone made him do that um he 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 thinks his instincts are always right and when the funny thing is like his instincts were totally right to win this really improbable and narrow presidential victory that was possible only because of our fucked up electoral system so he's like he now yeah. thinks his instincts are right for everything. <laughs> um, but they, his so instincts thinks, did
0: turn out to be a lot better than uh, a lot of the people, who, including me, oh, in yeah. some sense, who thought he had, wouldn't win.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, he he he, he showed that um, this two-step dance of uh, doing a fucked up thing and then being forced to give a sort of disingenuous walk back. Um, he showed how sort of pointless that is to, to dance to the tune of... Sort of sober pundit saying, "Oh well, he must uh, he must walk back that that outrageous thing he did." Um, you know, Trump. He still. It's funny. He still gets the pressure to do that, um, and he clearly still has people in the White House pressuring him to do that when he goes as far as he did after Charlottesville. Uh, but he has intuited that um, he should just never apologize and always double down. And then, and then it'll take this weird form now where. Um, you know he will just reinvent what the original offense was, or or just slightly slightly rejigger what the original offense was, so that he can uh, say, oh, you know, I, I never I never should have walked it back because what I originally said was fine. But uh, I don't know, it's it's all pretty transparent, but it does it has a it has the side effect of revealing how uh, uh, pointless the the game of renouncing is in, in like political media. So as, um,
0: as I mentioned a few minutes ago, Trump was in sort of serious uh, presidential mode on Monday night when he announced a major troop surge into the forever failed war in Afghanistan. Do you think he's just wagging the dog, attempting to deflect attention away from everything going on at home Um, or Um, He did, after all, make a point of saying that Americans weren't really allowed to disagree with each other because it offends the troops. Um, (laughs) Or do you think it was more Trump capitulating to his beloved generals? Or is it just Trump actually being kind of a normal American president who, um, since September 11th, just sends U.S. troops and ordnance all over the world um, to no foreseeable end?
1: Uh, it's it's a lot of those things, really. It's a, like a big mishmash of those things. Uh, I think the the whatever the the policy itself, which is still sort of a mystery to me, um, is him listening to his generals because um, he, he you know surrounded himself with like lackeys, Bannon types, and and then a bunch of generals, and the generals are sort of the last ones standing, and he has a um, cartoonish, like respect for what the generals say. And so for their
0: masculinity, I think. (laughs) Yeah,
1: exactly. For their exactly for the you know, their their shiny, uh, their shiny medals in their uniforms Um, and firm testicles. Yeah. So even if he I think instinctually was like um, this fucking Afghanistan thing is a, you know, a nightmare and we should cut and run. I think instinctually he sort of thought that. Um, The generals like convinced him and he didn't really have anyone around to to convince him otherwise. But the the speech was him, you know, trying to get to enjoy the the trappings of the presidency, uh, which is you get to deliver sober White House speeches about uh, how you're doing war. And then the country used to come together to do war and support war. Um, So it's all like I think he gets less pleasure out of that aspect of the presidency than he does out of the the campaign rally part of it. But uh, his again, his minders um, hope his minders hope that what happens when he gives a speech like that is it resets everyone, uh, especially the 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 dumber TV pundits who um, you can, you can see, I mean, you can see a few of them attempting to be like, well, this is the greatest speech of his presidency. And even if they'd be like, you know, we're not like, it's a low bar. it still, it works every damn time. Uh, when he goes out and, and like, uh, like the, the horse that could do arithmetic, like when he shows, he can read without, <laughs> uh, without accidentally, uh, tripping down the stairs. Um, people are like, Oh, you know, that was actually got to Got to give him credit for that. Um, so, you know, again, he is in such a manic mode right now that he like stepped on his own dick immediately afterwards and uh, went to Phoenix to do a campaign rally. But if he could have stuck to like, uh, I'm the sober war president for like a week, it really like actually might've gotten some people to think, well, this is the new Trump. Um, so I don't know. He's, he's, he's his own worst enemy when it comes to whatever the strategy is of getting, the sober pundits on board.
0: Yeah. You wrote really presciently about this quite a few months back. I believe it was after um, his, the address that he gave uh, uh, his, his, was it a state of the union address? Yeah. Um, it was
1: the fake, the fake state of the union. Yeah. Yeah. The joint, um, the
0: joint address or whatever the, the fake so too was.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, the, the rapturous reviews came uh who again when he uh talked about military action when he talked about uh, uh authorizing strikes in distant lands um with no After a
0: total bungled totally bungled raid in, in Yemen the first time i believe
1: Yeah right right yeah the, the yeah the bungled raid which he uh refused to sort of accept rep- responsibility for and blend on everyone else uh it should have been a debacle it should have been like it, the The press should have treated it as a debacle, but because um he uh, talked about the troops um and uh, again, like didn't uh, accidentally say a racial slur um they, they were like, this is the greatest moment of his of his presidency already um but it he operates on a really basic feedback loop, which is he sees what gets him good clippings and he does more of it um and uh, like it's always been, or it's been clear for a very long time that the way to get good press is to, um, is, you know, uh, to talk about the sober need for all Americans to support, um, strategically incoherent, endless war, uh, far away.
0: And it happened again after obviously when, uh, he struck the Syrian military, which uh, yeah. led to the uh, infamous invocation of of Leonard Cohen by um, Brian Williams.
1: Yeah, Jesus, yeah, um, and it's it's uh, I I don't know I'm I'm appalled I'm appalled anew every time um, because it I it, it's like this um, sort of professional uh, agreement that. You know, we can't criticize the military because it's the greatest institution in American society. Um, and like whatever, like the military aside, um, you the, there's never been any evidence that there is any like uh, end to any of these wars. There's no there's no strategy. And like you can't just uh, say that, you know, or uh, you, you I. Uh, it's no in got-
0: from the mainstream political discourse. Everyone's on the this is as much of a freak show as Trump is. This is frankly him at his most normal, which is that you go and get the troops killed and you still look like you support the troops as long as you give a shout out to the troops that you just got killed.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, And uh, of course, this of course, this would be the one part of the presidency Trump would be good at. And and, like (laughs) he uh, he has uh, always known um, how to I mean, he's like a military school baby boomer guy. So it's like um he he knows how to uh act like he respects the troop while also like having gotten deferments from fighting in vietnam um but uh yeah i mean you know you're, the the um prohibition against criticizing um the military then has like for years extended to a prohibition against criticizing any military action whatsoever and then it, it leads to the weird hypocrisy of like um constantly getting American service members killed for no coherent reason um, uh, is is not considered disrespecting the troops for some reasons
0: but a few years ago there was this big blow up when Chris Hayes in a remarkably honest moment on national TV sort of mused about the cult of the soldier in the u.s that was that was too much
1: yeah exactly yeah,
0: yeah. um <laughs> so speaking of Trump the war president this Ties into uh, recent palace intrigue. Um, Bannon, of course, was booted out of the White House. Um, what do you make of the move? As odious as the guy is, he was also the one of the few potential checks on the very mainstream militarism um, embraced by his so-called globalist uh, enemies in the White House. Um, and his departure certainly doesn't seem to have made Trump any less racist.
1: Yeah, uh, I think it was... Um... You know, Bannon uh, was um, useful to Trump, but uh, Trump in Trump, again, intuited what kind of man he would need to be to win the Republican nomination all on his own. You know, there was no Bannon around when Trump went full on further. So people (laughs) uh, people overestimated Bannon's influence a bit, and and he certainly um, did nothing to dissuade people from doing that. Uh, but, you know, the the only the only interesting thing about him um, is his conception of what a popular uh, ethno nationalist populist presidency would look like. And it would be, uh, you know, these big infrastructure plans and welfare chauvinism um, combined with a form of isolationism. But even that was always overstated because it was more like, you know, he wanted trade war with China and he. Uh, But and his plan for the Middle East was basically um, let the mercenaries handle it, uh, which is like he wanted to make it sort of like, which is also old school. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. He wanted to make it more brutal for them, um, but less uh, less of an investment for the United States, but like more brutal for for the countries that are our mercenaries are, uh, you know, occupying. Um, So um, I think people like to um, say, oh, you know, he, he, uh, would have pushed Trump to be less militaristic, but, um, the only place where he actually probably was a, a voice of reason was North Korea. Weirdly enough, if you want to listen, if you want to read that, mm-hmm. um, insane interview he did, uh, <laughs> with uh the where he, yeah, exactly. The prospect, um, he, he was like, talking like reasonable sense on how there are no good military options against North Korea that don't involve is, like, like Seoul being uh yeah totally it don't, it don't eliminated involve, yeah, <laughs> being obliterated and and within minutes um uh, and that was just him being realist and the what's funny is that like that form of realism has like no place in that mainstream United States militarism and foreign policy where it's like the the mainstream argument is you have to be as belligerent as possible uh, because otherwise your enemies won't respect you um but uh, uh so i don't know the bannon ouster was was trump getting uh i think uh, again sort of caving to pressure but also getting annoyed that um bannon kept uh doing things like giving bizarre on the record interviews to the prospect and uh, obviously with a lot of it was just about bannon like increasingly openly being at war with trump's daughter and son-in-law and they're going to win every internal argument uh in this in this white house that is about like personnel uh, even though they keep losing every argument that is about policy if you listen to uh sources close to them
0: so looking back um from trump's inauguration to today um there's basically a whole new cast of high-level white house staff and advisors does it matter
1: I think it matters. Uh, it probably matters less than um, the you know, the people he picked early on to be in his cabinet. And it matters less than the people that the Heritage Foundation picked for him to staff the agencies. Like those were the important moves. Um, but uh, the fact that um, basically he has he's surrounded at this point by very few conventional Republicans um, and uh, and a lot of. Um, just kind of random uh, Trump world loyalists and these generals, um, I think it means that his relationship with Congress is only going to get worse, and it was only going to get it worse anyway, as long as they continue to do anything involving Russia sanctions and the Russia investigation. Um, so it, it probably means that they feel more free to um, follow Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell's agenda and ignore whatever Trump would like them to do. Um and he's going to be sort of impotent watching that because he's shitty at politics, uh, which is like the a thing everyone could have seen coming when they sort of feared uh, uh, what he would do, including Republicans. It's like Trump doesn't really know how to do politics. Like he he knows how to do electoral politics. He doesn't have any clue how to do Washington politics. So uh, like we're we're just going to see um, him lashing out a lot. And we're going to but you know, we're going to see Jeff Sessions. It's going to be. Jeff Sessions running the administration, however, he wants to do it on his corner of it, uh, and it's going to be um, these generals presenting uh, war plans for him to sign off on, while <clears throat> while he runs around the country um, winking at white nationalists. Like that's, and I feel like that's going to be that's going to be the uh, the presidency for the foreseeable future.
0: In in short, still plenty fucking terrifying.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's a lot. There's plenty of damage he can do, even as a sort of politically impotent president.
0: I want to talk about a recent piece you wrote. Um, You wrote that the uh, white supremacist rally in Charlottesville was a, quote, introduction to the future leadership of the Republican Party. And you weren't making the obvious case that the Republican Party is and has long been racist. Um, Rather, you were saying that young people are fleeing the Republican Party in huge numbers, and that the few who are still inclined to join its leadership are more likely than ever to be unabashed racists explain explain your argument,
1: yeah. Uh, if you look at uh, any polling data, um, you can see that um, the uh, Republicans have been doing really shitty with everyone under thirty for a long time now. Um, and uh, uh, they tend to think that um, well these guys will just get more conservative as they get older um, but the polling is not bearing that out generation x is sort of the would be the test case for that because they all already are uh, getting older and um they've gotten more liberal and not less basically since 9 um and but so what that means is you have this small core of uh young people who are committed republicans um, and it's, you know, I, I, I think if you look at the last couple of presidential cycles, it's, a, you know, a third of people under 30 um, are inclined to vote Republican, but it's maybe a quarter of them who are like serious Republicans who aren't in danger of leaving the party uh, completely. Um, but what that means is that the ones who are left are like really, really into it. Uh, and even more, <laughs> even more worryingly, like the ones who aren't just like committed to voting Republicans, but the ones who want to get active in Republican politics, the ones who want to be college Republicans, the ones who want to do the sort of uh, political work that would lead to you being a party leader someday. Um, Like, you have to ask yourself, what would motivate someone to want to be more active in Republican politics in this era, since Trump basically, uh, uh, seized the party? Um, The motivations are not, um, I uh, respect the cerebral conservatism of William F. Buckley. Uh, You know, it's not, these are not a bunch of uh, people who read David Brooks uh, and then decide they want to uh, uh, bring humility back to politics. Yeah, they're not, Um, (laughs) they're not inviting
0: people from the National Review masthead even to speak on their campus. They're inviting Milo and Ann Coulter.
1: Yeah, exactly. So what uh, the, the impetus for the thing I wrote was that you had a couple people at in Charlottesville, uh, which was an avowed white nationalist rally. Um, you know, they were it was uh, it was not just there was it was the point at which the alt-right um, lost their ironic deniability. They used to be able to say, well, we're just being ironic online. Uh, but when you're marching in the streets with actual neo-Nazis, you lose that ironic deniability. So it was a coming out party for the the alt-right as as an avowed white nationalist movement. Um, And then you had a couple people there who were identified as uh, college Republicans, uh, leaders. One of them was the president of his college's college Republicans chapter. Um, These are the sort of people who want to be involved in the college Republicans at this point. And Republicans have... Um a pipeline to that creates candidates, basically. And the the feeder for this pipeline starts with organizations like the College Republicans. Um, so a few years down the line, what's gonna happen is they're gonna have um, hardly anyone in this pipeline, because hardly anyone is active, was active in Republican politics in this era. Um, the people who are in it, um, even if they weren't in Charlottesville themselves, are gonna be people who actively sympathized with what Charlottesville was all about. Uh, Because those are, you know, those are the people at, in uh, college Republican organizations, um, not just running them, but sort of driving away anyone who doesn't agree with them. Because why would you join that organization if you were just a regular conservative person and not someone who sympathized with white nationalists? Why would you join the college Republicans (laughs) when they're being led by people who constantly invite uh, Milo to speak at campuses? And so I, what was telling me was that even even at Columbia, um they uh where you would think again, like Columbia would be the place where the college republicans are are just like lacrosse bros who don't who want to <laughs> be taxed. Who wanna make sure <laughs> yeah, they don't want to be taxed. They want to protect their inheritances. Um like even they uh keep um inviting uh people like Mike Cernovich, who is an alt-right leader. Um, and Tommy Robinson, who is the founder of the English Defense League, which is like a gang of street hooligans wow. in the u k. that hates Muslims, like they've extended speaking invites to these people. This is the Columbia College Republican. So, yeah, I think the the allegiances and affiliations of the current crop of uh, young Republican leaders is really obvious. And again, a couple of, a couple of years down the line, this is not to say all Republicans are white nationalists, even if there are sort of racial resentments driving conservativism for years, but your only options for, you know, the the future candidates are going to be people who agree uh, with Mike Cernovich and Milo. Uh, People who spent this era of our history uh, promoting people like Milo um, are going to be state legislators because a bunch of voters who just check the box for the Republicans are going to be electing them to office. Um, We're going to have this whole crop of leaders of Republicans in a few years who um, are right now uh, effectively uh, white nationalists. And it's going to I don't know, it's going to be even it's going to be happening even as the country uh, grows more liberal. And it's going to be it's going to happen even if the country um, loudly turns against Trumpism, which I, I think could easily happen in the next few years. But because of our electoral system, because of the fact that the two parties have a stranglehold on ballot access, and because of the fact that one of the two parties basically, when you average it out, wins 50% of the time, um, Republicans are going to be stuck with these people as their leaders for years.
0: Oh, well, uh, God bless America. Um, Alex Perin, thank you so much. <laughs>
1: yeah on that on that cheerful note. <laughs> yeah
0: wow i was gonna ask like where does the revolution happen question but we're out of time <laughs>
1: <laughs> well we'll get to that next time <laughs> uh wait let me let me plug my uh, podcast. oh yeah please go. do please do i do i do a podcast with uh, matt taibbi called the tarfu report um you can find it we're on we're on uh patreon uh we can find it on the internet uh so check and it and out and the most recent episode
0: <laughs> is with keith ellison i believe
1: yeah, we talked to Keith Ellison. It was a, a very great uh, conversation.
0: Yeah, definitely check it out. Um, and check out um, the article we were discussing on Splinter. The URL for that is what?
1: Splinternews.com.
0: Great. Alex, thanks very much. Perrine is politics editor at Splinter. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once kind of said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our Postmaster General is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at the Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And if it's on iTunes, please leave us a review. Those reviews really do help introduce us to new listeners. And so does telling your friends, so do that as well. Also, find us on Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com, and make a monthly contribution. We really need the support, and thank you to those who are already supporting us.